Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading emerging markets information and advisory services firm. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and proprietary data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is a fireside chat with Professor Roger Leeds, Director of the Center for International Business and Public Policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Professor Leeds has just published a fascinating new book titled Private Equity Investing in Emerging Markets. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group, and I'm joined today in studio by Professor Leeds. Roger, welcome, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. It's a great pleasure, especially since Frontier Strategy Group has had the wisdom to hire a number of my former students uh, who I've kept in touch with, and I have a very high regard for the firm, so it's a great pleasure to be here. I should mention, yes, we uh, we have a very close relationship with Roger and with Sice, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking about this big milestone for you. I think before we discuss some of the key findings in the book, uh, I thought we could begin with your personal journey, which I think many executives in our listening audience will find uh, both fascinating and inspiring. And so I thought maybe as a starting point, Roger, you could walk our listeners through how you went from essentially a Peace Corps volunteer right out of undergrad to being one of the foremost thought leaders with regards to private equity investing in emerging markets. Well, my career has taken a lot of zigs and zags, but there have been some common threads starting back in the day when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the most remote part of Brazil. Uh, And after that, I came back to graduate school and got a doctorate in Through the years, I've worked in both the private and the public sector as well as academia. I only came to academia a few years ago, actually. I started on Wall Street at Solomon Brothers, a firm that is now extinct. Uh, And then I went to the IFC uh, at the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, where I worked on private sector investing in developing countries. Then went back to the private sector in a couple of capacities, but always working with the private sector in developing countries. And then one day the phone rang and I got this extraordinary opportunity to come to SICE and Johns Hopkins and be a full-time faculty member. I like to say it was an opportunity to become very poor and very happy. Uh, And I've achieved both objectives beyond my wildest imagination. But seriously, uh, the one common denominator in all this was I have worked throughout this period, throughout the developing world, in over 100 countries, always focused on the role of the private sector as a catalyst for growth, development, poverty alleviation in those countries. And that's what increasingly from the very beginning has been my, my interest. Uh, And this book reflects that. Yeah, I was going to say, if we turn to the book, uh, what prompted you to write it? And it sounds like you may have just answered the question, but is there anything you'd elaborate on? Yes, I would elaborate because I think that working in so many different countries at so many different levels with so many different entrepreneurs and business leaders, there have been some striking parallels that prompted me to write this book. Number one, and most importantly, everywhere I went, from China to Brazil to Kenya, all in every continent, I noted that uh, the private sector underperforms relative to how it performs in Western countries. And the data is, is very clear that the private sector in most of these countries in terms of growth, in terms of job creation, in many, many different metrics, just doesn't perform as well as it could or should. And that has always been intriguing to me. And the question becomes, why has it not performed? And of course, there are a broad range of reasons, and as we'll, maybe we'll talk about 
every country is different. There are a couple of things that I discovered that really drove me to write this book about the private sector's role in all these countries that differentiates it from developed countries, the Western countries. Number one, there's a financing gap at almost every level. Unless you're the very, very largest multinational corporation, you really have a great deal of difficulty gaining access to medium and long-term capital that every company, regardless of the country, requires to build its business. And it's much harder, more expensive, more time-consuming, and Ultimately, for most companies, it isn't very successful. The second is what I would call the human capital deficit in these countries compared to the West, which is to say that there are some wonderful entrepreneurs, great businessmen, but there is there's a thin layer in almost every developing country, no matter whether it's middle income or low income, poor or reasonably wealthy, there is a very thin veneer of qualified managerial talent. And this, again, is across the board. And you hear this everywhere you go, whether it's a small company, a medium-sized company, or a relatively large company. And that really was the driver for my interest in private equity and getting involved as a practitioner in private equity and ultimately writing this book. In your view, when you think about the differences between the private equity ecosystems in developed versus developing markets, and you, you just highlighted a couple of what I think are the, some of the key differences, you think it creates a far more compelling argument for the private equity return opportunity and the opportunity to make a difference in developing markets. Could you just talk about how private equity can help do that? I feel that the private equity opportunity is much more compelling in developing than developed countries, in part for the reason I just said. If you talk about the United States or any Western country, one of the common denominators is well-developed financial markets. So companies of all sizes and types and ages have access to a broadly diversified range of financing from very short-term to medium-term to long-term, stock markets, bond markets, uh, well-developed financial institutions. And so if you're performing reasonably well as a company at any level in the West, you can gain access to capital. And you can't in the developing countries, as I said. And that creates opportunity, Uh, not for everyone, and not every company is going to be attractive. But the lack of financing opportunities in developing countries in and of itself is a tremendous, uh, tremendously compelling reason for, for private equity. The other is that in developing countries, I find that in, regardless of the sector, it could be any sector imaginable, companies, because of this financing problem, a lot of very, very good companies grow to a certain level and then they hit a wall. They can't grow any larger, and they can't capture scale. And so you have lots of sectors, be it in retail or banking or agribusiness or name it, and they are fragmented markets. And so if you can find the right market leader, the right companies that have all the qualities that you're looking for, but don't have the financing and probably don't have the expertise internally to get to the next level, this creates a compelling opportunity that's long gone in the West, where companies are much larger, there's much less opportunity to roll up companies, where there's much less fragmentation, and there's a much deeper pool of talent. So those reasons that make the Western countries so strong also mitigate the opportunities that created in developing countries. You talk in your book about the ability for private equity to create 
what you describe as non-financial operational value. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at in that last answer, but maybe we can get a little deeper on that theme and, and share some examples. Time and again, I'm told uh, in developing countries that more important, literally, than the actual check that is written by the private equity investor is the value creation that comes from doing these deals time and time and time again in a country or in an industry acquiring an expertise that is in very short supply in a developing country or in a firm, and that astute entrepreneurs and business leaders in these countries see the private equity investor as bringing tremendous expertise that can help them build their business. And it's very important to remember that private equity investors, unlike other types of financiers have a tremendous incentive to build value. Uh, An investment banker, for example, an underwriter, works with a company, raises capital, collects his fee, and says goodbye and goes on to the next client. A banker, a creditor, cares about getting repaid interest and principal in full on time. That's all they're interested in. They're not interested in long-term performance beyond generating that cash flow to pay them back. Private equity investor is very, very different in terms of his incentive system, which is that he or she only gets the bonus, the big payout, at the end of the process, after they've written the check, worked with an entrepreneur for years, not months, years, build value in a variety of different ways, which we can talk about, and then exits the transaction. That's a a long-term process. So their incentive is directly aligned with the management of the company to create value, to build the company, grow it, become more profitable, and so forth, or they don't make any money. From a cultural perspective, I want to just drill on this topic a little bit further. So first of all, from a cultural perspective, are there cultural barriers to private equity working well with an entrepreneur? In this country, because it's a more developed ecosystem, it's a very proven business model and also a route to get capital for growth uh, or for buyouts or roll-ups or however you want to look at it. In developing markets, culturally, the ability for that entrepreneur to work in a positive and constructive way with a private equity firm. Are are there barriers or have you seen that? Barriers are huge. And I would say that one of the key factors for success for any private equity professional is to be culturally sensitive to the countries they're working in. And I think that this is critical. It's as important as knowing how to do a discounted cash flow or or giving an, doing an operating plan. If you don't take into consideration the extraordinary cultural differences from country to country, you're not going to be successful. This is a business that requires on-the-ground presence 24-7, working shoulder-to-shoulder with entrepreneurs and understanding the, the cultural environment, the business environment in which you're working in. If you go to, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, you will be reminded people talk about Africa as if it's one country often, the continent of of Africa, when in fact it's 50 countries. And if you aren't attuned to the differences in each one of those 50 countries, uh, you're not going to be successful. And it's not just language, it's a lot of other things as well. What about from an industry perspective, as you think about this opportunity to create operational value and outsized financial returns, do certain industries lend themselves more towards private equity investing in emerging markets vis-a-vis developed markets or in general? It's very country-specific, but I I circle back to where I started, which is that the private sector is underperforming almost everywhere in the developing world for very specific reasons. And so, so many of the industries are fragmented. There's very little consolidation. There's very little scale. What you have is a private sector pyramid, the structure of the private sector, where you have a very small handful of huge companies at the very top of that pyramid, unlike in the United States or in the West. 
And then you fall off a cliff into what is euphemistically referred to as small and medium-sized companies that can't grow for a variety of reasons to compete with these behemoths at the top. So sector after sector after sector fits this profile. And so I think there are opportunities almost everywhere, and some that you wouldn't expect. So, for example, if we had been talking, having this conversation 10 years ago, we wouldn't have talked about education. The educational sector is becoming very um, uh, prominent with private equity investors because private provision of education is now a big business in developing countries. Healthcare uh, is another one which we wouldn't have talked about a few years ago, but now is very much on the radar screen of private equity investors. And then, of course, everything having to do with the environment. So it really runs the gamut, much more so than in the West. I thought it was interesting in the book how you traced uh, the emerging market private equity market before the crisis, the financial crisis, and then post-crisis. What were some of the biggest findings in each of the each of the time periods? Before the crisis, which would probably go from the late 90s to the, to the crisis in 2008, 2009, private equity in emerging markets was embryonic and pretty much dominated by a few large Western players. And they weren't very successful in the, in the early years. They became successful just before the crisis. But if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, the original idea was that you could take the venture capital model that was so successful in the United States and other Western countries, tinker around the edges, and you'd be successful in developing countries. Wrong. And they, a lot of them lost their shirt. And one of the reasons, by the way, was because of the lack of cultural sensitivity. Another was that they thought they could parachute in, do their work, come home to their families on the weekends, and that would be fine. But it's a, as I said earlier, it's a 24-7 business. And so the performance of the private equity pioneers was not what was expected. And then it started to take off before the crisis. And then, of course, during the crisis, there was a huge liquidity problem, um, and the industry slowed down, both in the U.S. and abroad. After the crisis, activity slowed down briefly, but not for long, because now the private equity industry in developing countries was more mature. And you had a couple of, of new trends, one of which was very positive, one of which I would argue is quite negative. On the positive side, you had more and more local professionals in the business, so more local, local funds, especially in the countries like China, Brazil. You had developed a world-class group of professionals in those countries who were doing private equity deals. And the deal flow was just as good. On the negative side, the deals were getting bigger and bigger. So the competition at the top of that, that private sector pyramid was becoming more intense. And I think one of the questions going forward is, is there enough, as we say, deal flow at the top? And will some of these private equity funds come more down market? Finance, as you know, is a, is a scale business. Anybody in finance believes bigger is better. And they want to do the biggest deals they can. So this is a problem. And we'll have to see how it plays out. We saw the, the pace of that shift from, you know, what used to be a big deal to now what is a big deal happened very, very rapidly here in the U.S. I know in the businesses I've been involved in, when somebody would write a check that they used to think was a big check, now it's a rounding error. Right. In a matter of three to five years. So There's another aspect of this in private equity in emerging markets, however, which is that, in my view, the real growth opportunities, the real profit opportunities are not at the top in the bigger deals. They're in the middle. They're the growth-oriented mid-market companies that, um, as I described earlier, have tremendous potential, have great leadership, but lack a couple of things to get to that next level. That's where the real compelling private equity opportunity is, I believe. And yet, 
in the last couple, two or three years, I've noticed that uh, it's harder and harder for these mid-market funds and the companies they invest in to attract attention. And I think this is a concern. In the book, you provide three different chapters, which are country case studies, which I I thought was interesting. China, Brazil, and Kenya. And I'd love to dive into each one, but uh, we don't have time for that. So maybe you could pick one that you think provides some of the best learnings or would be really interesting for our listening audience. I picked those three countries because they're so different, obviously. Um, And I won't go into the differences because I think it is pretty obvious, Kenya, Brazil, and China. But let's take Brazil. Uh, The short-term outlook for Brazil could hardly be worse. Growth is probably going to go into negative territory this year. Interest, real interest rates are very, very high. Credit is constrained. The currency is depreciated dramatically over the last uh, 12 months. It's a terrible situation. But the point is that private equity is a counter-cyclical business. And when everybody is heading for the exit, which the herd always does, is the time to be looking for undervalued assets. And I believe that Brazil is a good example of a country where, with a vibrant private sector, very diversified, a great infrastructure, uh, but going through a very rough time, and I'm not going to project how long it's going to last, but the astute, seasoned private equity investors always are looking for the day after the crisis or during the crisis to pick up undervalued assets with great growth potential. And I happen to believe that in Brazil right now, where everybody's heading for the exits, I'd be going in there, looking for quality companies, market leaders who can ride out the storm and with the right capital injection plus expertise have the potential to grow. Whereas in China and Kenya, you might be chasing valuations right now. Right, certainly in China. China is very crowded. Uh, I'm not so concerned as as many people are about China's long-term economic prospects, but I do think in private equity, it's had a meteoric rise. It's attracting, still attracting a lot of attention. And, you know, I just think it's a harder nut to crack. It's also heavily dominated, by the way, by the Chinese funds. Let's jump into a time machine and tell our listening audience, what does the private equity market look like in emerging markets 10 years from now? If you look at the private equity market in emerging markets today, it is virtually unrecognizable from what it was 10 years ago. I never would have imagined it would have grown so deeply or broadly as it has attracted so many uh, really talented professionals as it has, both Western and local. And I think the same is true going forward, um, that We'll look back and say that it's unrecognizable from today, but I would, I would point out a few things that are make it, will make it different. One is it's going to become more and more local. If you look at the importance of policy for the development of venture capital and private equity in the United States back in the 70s and 80s, you had policy shifts that allowed pension funds and insurance companies to invest in, in alternative assets like private equity. And it really was the catalyst for the growth of the industry. It's only just beginning now in developing countries where policies are changing that will permit and encourage local institutional financial institutions, uh, savoring institutions, to invest a portion of their assets in private equity. I think that's going to be dramatic. Less dependence on the dollar, which makes perfect sense with these companies, less foreign exchange risk, and more local currency financing of private equity, which is the way it should be. So I think that's going to happen 
with uh, increasingly in these countries. It's already started in countries like China. It took off like a rocket, and there will be other... Uh, this takes government attention in those countries to make this happen, and I think it's beginning to come on their radar screen, and I'm very optimistic about it, and I think it's a very good trend. The other, as I sort of hinted at earlier, is that there are more and more local professionals that are on a par with their Western counterparts in this industry. This is a very labor-intensive, skill-intensive business, private equity, much more so, I would argue, than just pure finance, because you're, you have to create value. You're not just writing a check. You then have to create value post-investment in these companies. It's very skill-intensive. And I'm seeing more and more countries where there are really first-class professionals going into this business, and that makes me very encouraged. And so I think the business over time is going to become more local. It's, you're still going to have the Carlisles, the KKRs going in there. Uh, doing big, big, big deals. But I think that you're going to see more middle market private equity. And I think that's very encouraging. And do you think that they leapfrog? Like in the U.S., we've seen the private equity business model shift from traditional private equity to where they're almost their own advisory firms, their own investment banks in many cases. They underwrite their own deals in some cases. Do you see that happening in emerging markets? Or do you think they'll stick to the, the basics at least for a while? I think they'll stick to the basics primarily, and the reason is is that the financial sectors in these countries are invariably the lagging sector, and so there's tremendous weakness in the financial sector that creates this opportunity. I mean, if you go to a country like China even, which is, I don't have to tell your audience, is had spectacular, historically unprecedented growth for 30 years, and... Uh, I have nothing but admiration for what's been accomplished there. But the financial sector has continuously been the lagging sector, and today still is. I mean, it's beginning to change. But the financial sector does not address the needs of the private sector in China, even today. Hence the shadow banking system. The shadow banking system, exactly. In our remaining time, I wanted to turn maybe from the book to a couple of other uh, quick questions. Um, The first is, besides private equity investing in emerging markets, your book, what is the best book you've read recently? And why? Well, the best is a really tough word. I mean, I wrote this book because there was no other book that dealt with private equity in a holistic way in developing countries. There's some wonderful books on private equity, but most of them, if they address the private uh, emerging markets at all, they pay lip service to it. Most of the attention in the academic community is on the West. And it's also mainly financial. And I wanted to write something that was more holistic talking about the entire private equity investment cycle and, and developing countries. I mean, if I had to talk about a, a private equity book, I mean, the textbook that Josh Lerner at Harvard Business School wrote, he also endorsed this book, is a great book. Probably the single one that I would refer to and I use in my courses more than any other. But I do, I read very broadly, you know, and uh, a matter of fact, I don't read there very much in the private equity world I don't have a big private equity library uh, because there isn't much written that really uh, attracts me. But I do a lot of reading and other subject matter that's um, some of it's related, some of it's not. In your opinion, because you have the opportunity to meet so many different business leaders, what common characteristics have you noticed that business leaders need to have to be successful as operating executives in emerging markets? We've already talked about one of them, which is cultural sensitivity. Um, And I find that this is 
something that's so obvious but it's often absent with many very talented people. These countries are different, and if you're not sensitive to those differences, which are as much cultural as political and economic, you're not going to be successful in these countries. You're not going to gain the confidence of the business people you want to do business with in these countries. And you're not going to know how to navigate the very complicated political, legal, and economic landscape in these countries. So I think that that's really important. I also think, as I just said, you have to think more holistically. There are technical aspects to this business, but you have to think more about what's happening in the government strengths and weaknesses of the government. You have to think institutionally. You know, the thing, One of the aspects of developing countries that distinguish them from their more developed counterparts is they have very weak institutions. The rule of law, for example, is taken for granted in the West and doesn't really exist in the same way. The enforcement of contracts in these countries, can, you get the best, highest paid lawyers and they write airtight legal contracts, but I will tell you that entrepreneurs in developing countries will run circles around you if you don't understand that uh, the force of law in most of these countries is not very uh, meaningful. Last question. Who do you admire most when it comes to emerging markets from a business leadership perspective? And that can be either a company, it can be an institution, or it can be an individual. I think the people I admire most are doing, uh, have been successful, but are now branching out. I'm a great believer, for example, I've never met Bill Gates, but I'm a great believer in the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Here's a man who's became a billionaire and then put his energy and his talent to a different type of use. And I'm, uh, I think it's a wonderful uh, testament to both him, but what, setting an example for others to do something in addition to what, the, what got them to where they are today. And so I, I like what he's done. Warren Buffett is another one who's still making a lot of money, but is, uh, uh, is giving away his wealth. Uh, and thinking about how he can do that in a constructive way. So I'm, a, I'm attracted to people who are successful, both financially and otherwise, but once they have achieved a certain level of success, um, have uh, broadened out and uh, begun to think about how they can do good as well as do well. That's a perfect note to, to end on. Roger, thank you so much for sharing these excellent insights, for taking time out of your busy schedule between uh, your classwork and your book tour. I strongly encourage our listeners to go out and purchase the book. Once again, the name is Private Equity Investing in Emerging Markets. It's available on Amazon. We barely have had a chance to scratch the surface of this fascinating topic. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging markets portfolio.